And time for another edition of the Dr. Payne Show. Anytime you need to get a hold of the good doctor, simple, one 855 Dr. Lou D-R-L-O-U. Email is info at paincarecanada.com. Uh, Dr. Lou, we got a fantastic show today. We have a guest on the show, Dr. Carlo Amendolia, and uh, this guy, his business card, it would be the size of a coffee table. The He's credentials, a, a, yes. Assistant producer, or pardon me, assistant professor, University of Toronto, associate scientist, Department of Medicine at Mount Sinai, uh, chiropractor, spine clinic, spinal stenosis program at Rebecca McDonald Center for Arthritis and Autoimmune Diseases. The list goes on and on and on. And I know you want to talk some uh, some pretty heavy and interesting stuff today with the uh, with the good doctor. How are you guys doing? Good, good. Thank Very you well, for thanks. thank you for being here, good. Doctor. I'm well, thank you for having me. No problem. So yeah, I mean, as I went through school uh, in chiropractic college, we learned a lot about. Uh, Dr. Amendolia's research and the things that he was doing. And um, John, you know this firsthand with the amount of calls that we get related to um, spinal-related issues, specifically things like spinal stenosis, which um, Dr. Amendolia has done extensive amount of research and has um, things here. Uh, And, you know, I've I've, I've listened to a lot of the things that you've talked about, Dr. Amendolia, and it's not necessarily just about reducing pain because sometimes that's not Mm -hmm. what is possible it's more about preventing disability in these people and clinically what i see when i see people with spinal stenosis that is their goal a lot of them have realized you know pain is is what it is um but i i don't want to be disabled from this but you know we'll get into everything around spinal stenosis and that's why we wanted to to have you here today and thank you very much for being here but before we get started i mean john and i won't do as great of a job of of your credentials as you will so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got to where you are today sure sure i've been in clinical practice for 37 years right now i guess uh this year and i started off as a clinician working in private practice for about 15 years and then went back and decided i want to get some more credentials in the academic world because I wanted to move into the academic world. And so I went back and got my master's in clinical epidemiology from U of T. Uh, And then uh, following that, I went to get my PhD from U of T as well in clinical sciences and healthcare research. And and so now I sort of uh, juggle uh, three things at at our uh, clinic at Mount Sinai. One, I I see patients and we have a a very busy clinic. We also do research, uh, particularly on spine and spine-related conditions, uh, particularly spinal stenosis. And then we train trainees. We train medical doctors. We train chiropractic researchers. We train medical interns. We train chiropractic interns uh, at our clinic. So we combine clinical research, clinical care, and training at the hospital. Right. So it's very busy, but uh, very rewarding at the same time. And and what was the primary reason that you wanted to move that route versus the, the clinical practice? Uh, a couple reasons. Number one reason was that uh, I thought uh, in order to train chiropractors, I think you need to have some credentials to, to be able to train them, particularly in the area of clinical research. And so I wanted to have those credentials to train both not only chiropractors, but also medical doctors. And, and so I th- felt that having credentials would be important. And also training. If you want to train in a university environment, you need to have your, your, at least your, your master's, but particularly your PhD. So these credentials are really critical if you want to move into the academic world. And so I thought it was important for me to get these credentials. Right. And did you, was there a part of you that when you were in clinical practice that you were finding that 
you just didn't have the right answers and, and did any of that kind of spark your interest or not? not well, really? I think what was the, uh, the tipping point was uh, back in the 90s, there was a, something called uh, evidence-based practice that was just emerging. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that was very interesting. And so I looked into more what that all meant. And it was in the new way of, uh, of looking at uh, how we practice and how we uh, uh, treat patients uh, using the best available evidence. And in the chiropractic world, particularly, there was not a lot of evidence-based practice because there was not a lot of evidence. And so I thought, you know, why not uh, get involved in this area of the new science and help chiropractors uh, particularly uh, to uh, use this new world of evidence-based practice in their clinics. And I thought it would be a good idea for me to get credentials, get expertise in this area, and share this uh, with the chiropractic profession. And as it turns out, uh, I'm not only sharing it with the chiropractic profession, but also uh, researchers worldwide and medical professions. It's, it's, it's something that we're all uh, striving to do in our clinics, whether you're a chiropractor, a medical doctor, a physical therapist. It really doesn't matter the evidence the world of evidence-based practice uh, is important and uh, whoever sees patients need to be practicing uh, evidence-based practice. Yeah, absolutely. And our listeners are, I think, well-versed in evidence-based care and evidence-based medicine because I often will speak about this. Um, And I think it's great. I think it's also very much important to highlight that you are the director of the Spine Clinic and Spinal Stenosis Program at Mount Sinai Hospital working alongside um, not just other chiropractors, but probably more so other uh, medical specialists like rheumatologists um, and spine surgeons, neurologists, and things like that to to really provide the the forefront in in managing these types of um, spine related issues. Um, I think where we should probably start with our listeners is why don't you give us what spinal stenosis is? Because I mean, a lot of people, I, I know what I see in clinical practice, a lot of people come in, they have a sheet of paper and they say, you know, my doctor told me I have spinal stenosis. Um, and, and my first question is, well, do you know what that is? And, and you know, I would say probably 80 to 90% of the time the answer is no, I have mm-hmm. no idea what it is. Yeah. I've just been told that it's the reason for right. my back pain. Yeah, so spinal stenosis refers to a narrowing of the openings where the nerves travel from the spine that go down into the back and down the legs. And the most common cause of narrowing of these openings is due to wear and tear due to aging or osteoarthritis, which is the common term. There are lots of different things that can cause it, but by far the vast majority of patients who come in with spinal stenosis, it's due to age-related wear and tear in the spine that causes narrowing of these openings that impact the nerves that travel to the back and the legs. And the dominant limitation in these patients is limited walking ability. So these patients have difficulty walking. They they walk for a block, two blocks, three blocks, and then they need to find a place to sit down. And this is the common presentation from these patients. Okay. So we're gonna we're gonna take a quick break and we'll we'll continue on that um, topic once we come back. Lots more to go here. Stick around. Dr. Carlo Amendolia is here for the duration. You have questions, emails, a, a good a good option for that. Info at paincarecanada.com. And, of course, you know the number to get a hold of Dr. Lou anytime. one 55 doctor lou D-R-L-O-U. It is the Dr. Pain Show. Lots more on the way. Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Dr. Payne Show, one 55 Dr. Lou, D-R-L-O-U for contact or info at paincarecanada.com. Dr. Carlo Amandalia is here. We're talking spines. We're talking spinal stenosis, uh, Dr. Lou. Interesting topic, and apparently it affects a lot of people, not just in North America, but overseas as well, right? Yeah, we were just off air uh, speaking with Dr. Amandalia about how prevalent this is, and 
And why don't you tell us? I mean, there's not great research, but there's yeah. some good research. Yeah, so we don't have a lot of data in North America on the prevalence uh, of spinal stenosis. There's lots of good data in Japan. And the reason for that is that Japan is a very old population, if you will. 25% of the Japanese population are over the age of 65 and 10% of them have spinal stenosis. And that works out to be about 12 million Japanese right now wow. are suffering from spinal stenosis. In North America, the estimates are around 20 to 30% of people over the age of 65 will ultimately have some form of, of spinal stenosis to give rise to symptoms, uh, but that's a bit speculative. Um, but uh, any, no matter how you cut it, there's going to be a lot of people out there as, as the people age that have difficulty walking due to degenerative uh, spinal stenosis. stenosis. When you were speaking uh, in the previous segment about what spinal stenosis is, and you mentioned that it's a narrowing of those canals where the nerves are coming out, there's the nerves that go out to the limbs, but there can also be a narrowing of the central canal where the spinal cord is. Is that, is that correct? Well, the spinal cord actually starts a bit higher at level L1, which is quite high, uh, higher in the spine, in the lumbar spine, and it doesn't get usually involved. Uh, spinal stenosis of the lower back usually involves peripheral nerves, which are nerves that go down into uh, the leg. That's not really the spinal cord itself, but actual nerves that come from the, the, the cord down to the spine and exit those openings. So we're not dealing with the cord unless we're getting stenosis higher up, which is not that common. Not it's common. particularly common at the L4, L5 area of the lumbar spine, which is lower. And that's because the L4, L5 level in the spine is actually narrower narrower by design. So we're born at, with, with a smaller area. And when we get older, that's the area that gets more susceptible to wear and tear. And it's usually the most common area for spinal stenosis. Right. And, and as you mentioned there, you, you, you spoke about earlier that spinal stenosis, that narrowing, that narrowing of a canal could be caused by different types of, of pathologies, but the vast majority is related to the arthritis. And a lot of people are often told, um, you know, again, in, in clinical practice, based on what I see, a lot of people are told they have arthritis of the spine, but mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that everybody that has degenerative disc disease necessarily has um, significant spinal stenosis or something that is clinically going to cause them symptoms. Right, and that's a very good point. Spinal stenosis is a descriptive term, meaning arthritis or narrowing of the spine, spinal canals. It doesn't necessarily mean the patients will have symptoms. In fact, there are 30% of people over the age of 55 have, have moderate narrowing of the canal size in an, in an x-ray or an MRI and have no symptoms whatsoever. So the fact that you have arthritis in the spine doesn't necessarily mean you have spinal stenosis giving rise to symptoms. So we need to be aware of that. We don't treat MRIs. We don't treat x-rays. Yes. We treat people. And so we need to really assess the patient's symptomatology uh, rather than focusing too much on an MRI. MRIs are important when we're dealing with things like cancer, infections, fractures. And if you're a surgeon or someone that puts injections in a spine, then the MRI becomes important. Uh, but for us who are actually seeing patients and treating them from a non-surgical perspective, the MRI really isn't all that important. Yeah. Yeah. And, we, and we've talked about this a lot. You know, we've had several other guests on the show, even surgeons in different areas of the body. And, and the physical exam ends up being a lot of the times with, with injury and pain management, the most important thing. And, and we've gone through this a lot where you have to correlate what you're seeing on an image. And oftentimes patients are simply just told what's being seen on an image and they're not being correlated clinically in terms of, well, is that 
significant to the way you're presenting? And is there a correlation there uh, based on that? And, and, and I think that's a very, very important uh, point, that correlation between what you're seeing on imaging, as you put it, that you're not treating an MRI, you're treating a person. Yeah. Unfortunately, in my clinic, we have residents who want to look at the MRI before they actually see the patients. And we have a rule in my clinic, they look at the MRI at the very end, after they've done the history and after, after they've done the physical examination. And once they have some sort of idea what the condition might be, at that point, they'll take out the MRI. Otherwise, the MRI might lead them into doing questions that refer to the MRI which may have absolutely nothing to do with the patient's symptomatology. So in my clinic, just to get our, our trainees uh, to understand the importance of history and physical examination, we get them to look at the MRR at the very end, uh, and this way they can hone, on, hone, hone in their skills um, because most of the diagnosis is done through the clinical and the history and not through the MRI. Right. Doctor, before we, uh, before we take a break, let me ask you a question. Why do you think it's so, especially in Japan, you, 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 know, you put that statistic out there, why do you think it's become so prevalent in people that the spinal stenosis up to 20 or 30%? Are we, are we uh, you know, because of nutrition, et cetera, are we outliving what our body's supposed to be handled? Should we be you know, kicking the bucket at 60? You yeah, well, that's, a, that, that's a great question. And the reason for that is because that we're living longer. We're living right. longer. And the longer you live, the more likely you're going to have spinal stenosis because it's a wear and tear type of condition. So as you get older, when you get, you're going to be older at 90 than you are at 80, and your spine's going to be much older, 10 years older, and that's going to be wear and tear. Look at a car tire for example. The longer right. the car tire is on the road driving around, the more wear and tear it's going to have. So the same thing happens to the spine. And because Japanese tend to be an older population, mm -hmm. they don't have much immigration there. It's a very homogeneous, homogeneous population. Uh, you know, with 25% with of their population over the age of 65, they are now seeing a tsunami of people coming in to our clinics, to clinics in Japan, looking for help. I wonder if uh, nature or evolution will ever catch up and you know make us a little bit stronger over time. I guess that's yet to be seen, right? Yeah, that's a possibility. I think yeah. uh, you know we'll get into treatment later on, but uh, there are lots of opportunities for patients to do something about this condition and actually quite uh, improve their uh, their quality of life. So much to get through here. Uh, stand by with us. Stick with us. Uh, the email, by the way, is info at paincarecanada.com. You want to reach out and contact Dr. Lou for this or any other problems, uh, go by, get an examination done, at least get an assessment. Having one eight five 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 doctor lou D-R-L-O-U. It's the Dr. Payne Show, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Dr. Payne Show, you know the number, one eight five 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 doctor lou D-R-L-O-U. Email simple, info at paincarecanada.com. Dr. Payne, go for it. Yeah, so in incredible interaction so far with the, the amount of knowledge um, that Dr. Amendolia is imparting on us. Why don't you walk us through um, what are some of, I mean, you, you've already mentioned that walking is one of the big features, but what else what else would tip someone off to the the idea that they might have spinal stenosis or that that might be one of the things to, to at least rule out in, in what's going on with them? Right. So typically patients will present with numbness, tingling, weakness, heaviness of the legs in the buttock or down the legs. Could be unilaterally one leg or two legs. Uh, and it usually precipitated by standing and walking. So when they stand and when they walk, they have symptoms down their legs. And the more they stand and the more they walk, the more they, these symptoms intensify. Do, do they have back pain as well? Not off. Well, they can, but uh, it's not a, a requirement. Uh, oftentimes, patients don't have any back pain whatsoever. In fact, sometimes they have no leg pain. They have numbness and tingling and weakness and heaviness. And pain, although pain is, uh, is often the main complaint, it, it, it doesn't necessarily have to have pain. Uh, like I said, it's, it's often 
pain in combination with weakness and heaviness of the legs, pins and needles, legs falling asleep, feeling like a you know lead as you walk. The, this lead in, is getting heavier and heavier, and they have to find a place to sit down, and that's the typical presentation. Sometimes there is back pain, uh, but back pain is not the dominant feature in this particular condition. It's leg symptoms primarily. The symptoms in the legs, and again, not just merely pain, but other types of paresthesias mm-hmm. and things like that. And, and and that's important. And most times when people, you know, like on, on a primary care perspective, when people present with that type of presentation, they're often just told sciatica. You have mm-hmm. sciatica, mm-hmm. right? And, and, you know, we've gone through this a lot on the show as well, where, you know, well, what's causing that sciatic nerve to be irritated is, is, is very important. And some of the things are things like spinal stenosis. Now, being a progressive disease and something that obviously worsens over time and 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 with age, um, I guess those symptoms also worsen over time. You may not necessarily have a consistent symptom um, all the time, a hundred percent of the time when this is first starting, um, and then it would progress to something. What is the? And this is probably a very hard question, but when when do people usually start feeling the initial symptoms? Around what? What stage or what age? I don't know if there, if there's yeah. a way to quantify it. Yeah, the symptoms usually present uh, later in life, usually over the age of 50, primarily. Okay. Uh, when patients are younger than 50, usually between 30 and 40, it's usually disc-related issues, disc herniations that are the most dominant cause of, of pain down the leg, sciatic pain, if you will. And then as the older you get, you're less likely to have uh, active disc herniations because discs become... Uh, uh, as they this get older, they lose fluid, fluid they become right. calcified, and they actually don't move very much. Right. So when you're bending forward or you do a straight leg raise, and that's how we test for nerve tension, the disc doesn't move very much because it's calcified, it loses fluid, it's, it's, it's fairly rigid, even though you'll see it on an MRI as a, as a herniated disc. And that's one of some, some of the problems. Patients will come in or, or even clinicians will tell us, oh, you have herniated discs in your spine and the person's 90 years old. Well, that doesn't really that's mean not that's not likely the cause. Yeah. Although the fact that there's herniated disc may cause some further narrowing of the canal so it's a contributor to the narrowing but it may not be directly the cause of the problem in the legs it's usually due to the narrowing uh, of this of the canals that the disc may contribute but there's arthritic changes in the facet joints there's ligamentous thickening all this contributes to narrowing of the spinal canals and gives rise to the tingling and the numbness when patients walk because the more they walk the more the pressure builds up in that spinal canal Right. And, and you, you had mentioned um, when we were looking at the way this happens in patients, is, is it, can it ever happen in someone under 50 or even yeah. relatively yes. young? There probably yeah. would be to something more right. serious going on. It can be, but there's other two conditions that are three conditions primarily that you might see a spinal stenosis or, or the, the clinical term is actually called neurogenic claudication. Right. Neurogenic claudication is those symptoms I described, buttock pain, numbness and tingling in the weakness, weakness of the legs. That's the clinical diagnosis, yep. neurogenic claudication. Um, and so there are other causes of neurogenic claudication that can occur at Young, a younger age, and one is congenitally narrowed pedicles. That means you're right. born with a smaller canal. Right. So patients who have smaller canals to begin with will have symptoms earlier on in their 40s. Right. So that's one one reason you might get it earlier. The second reason is something called a spondylolisthesis. Right. And a spondylolisthesis refers to a bone that slips 
on one on top of the, the other. other yeah. And so normally they're lined up together and the, the hole is very large that where the nerves travel. But as that bone slips forward, the holes become narrower. So people who have this kind of spondylolisthesis or the slippage are also susceptible to having um, uh, symptoms at an earlier age. And then finally, iatrogenic causes. And this refers to if, if patients have had surgery, for example, disc surgery when they were younger, they have a predisposition because oftentimes there's, there's scar tissue, there's, there's reactive bone formation that following surgical interventions and so that might be another reason why someone who's had surgery earlier in life in the spine might be predisposed to having earlier uh, earlier symptoms than someone who is older who didn't have those predispositions. Right. And, and you mentioned, as you said, the clinical diagnosis is what's called neurogenic claudication. Um, there's also vascular claudication, right. which can create a similar type of, of presentation. Yeah. How does one distinguish that? That's a great question. First of all, I want to let you know that in 26% of patients with neurogenic claudication, they also have vascular claudication happening at the same time wow. because vascular claudication is a condition of aging as well. Right. It's the wear and tear of the blood vessels themselves that get thicker and then the blood can't get down into the legs. So right. that's a different condition, but they occur in older individuals and they can occur, as I mentioned, at the same time. How do you differentiate is a very good question and how we do it clinically is that uh, neurogenic claudication is a dynamic condition. That is to say that symptoms change relative to posture. So when you're standing and start to walk and you flex forward like over a shopping cart for example. Right. If you're on a stationary bike and you're using your legs but you're leaning forward, then you have little or no symptoms because bending forward increases the size of the canals. Right. So less pressure. But in, in, in something with vascular claudication, it doesn't matter if you're bending forward or not or you're on a cycle or not, you're going to still have those symptoms in your legs. So right. clinically, again, going back to asking the right questions, getting a, a sense of how those symptoms come on can often give you the sense of whether it's vascular claudication or neurogenic claudication just by the dynamic nature of the condition. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, great, great stuff. I think there's a couple other questions I have for you that we'll do right after the break related to that vascular versus neurogenic claudication. You need uh, information moving forward. As we get into break here, you can contact uh, Dr. Lou anytime and go from there. one 855 doctor Lou or info at paincarecanada.com. Lots more on the way. It's a Dr. Pain Show, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Dr. Payne Show, you know the contact, one 55 Dr. Lou, D-R-L-O-U, email simple, info at paincarecanada.com. We are joined uh, this hour by Dr. Amandolia, talking about spines, talking about stenosis. You talked about some of the uh, the causes of this, uh, doctor. I was just thinking as, as you guys were chatting in the uh, the last segment, is there any other outside forces that would influence this? And by that, I mean being grossly obese, being way over six Good feet question. tall. Any, anything like that would uh, would have anything to do with it? Yeah, so right now we're just looking at a paper right now that we're publishing, looking at the factors that might mm -hmm. uh, help us to, uh, that might contribute to getting spinal stenosis. And right now we don't know very much about that. We know there's probably some hereditary factors. So if your dad or mom had spinal stenosis, right. uh, you're likely to get it as well, just because you probably inherited a spine that's probably a little bit more prone to osteoarthritis. So that's probably one. When we look at the weight, that's a great question. Uh, we think that weight might be useful for patients who have stenosis to lose weight and might have less symptoms, but we see a lot of patients who are very, very thin who have symptoms of stenosis. So we know that it's not a very large contributor, but if you're over, overweight and obese, 
then then you probably would do better to lose the weight and decrease the symptoms because we do know that increased weight does change the size of the canals. So it only makes sense if you can change the size of the yeah. canals, then it might help you with getting less symptoms. In terms of other factors, injuries to the spine, perhaps you know that that you've had in, when you were young, football players or uh, people that have a lot of contact sports, if you have injuries to a spine, you're likely going to have earlier degenerative changes, and that's probably going to predispose, predispose you to having stenosis as well. Just like any other joint in the body that gets injured, it's likely going to be prone to having arthritic changes. So those are the, probably the more important ones. I, I remember, Dr. Amendolia, listening to one of your talks um, when I was still a student, and I remember you had a theory that potentially this and this is, I don't think, substantiated in any evidence, but, I mean, you're a resource here, and, and and your theory is that it's just based on evolution, that we've probably stood up too quickly versus being on all fours. Is that, do you still kind of hold weight in that or not necessarily? Well, I think when we look at back pain uh, in general, uh, you know, one of the theories, and I, I, I agree with this particular theory in that the reason that that back pain is so ubiquitous. Everybody has back pain. Ninety percent of the population gets back pain right. at one point in time, and 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 uh, and and lumbar stenosis is a part of the back pain spectrum, if you will. It's because that we have not evolved uh, in the upright. We're still evolving, in fact, in the upright posture. And I think there's a lot of stresses and biomechanical stresses going on into the spine um, and that uh, that contribute to back pain and contribute to wear and tear. Right. And I think this evolutionary process is still going forward. And perhaps as we move forward in the next million years, we'll have less back pain. John won't, John won't be around then. <laughs> but, but I think you're right. <laughs> but I've been I think saying right. that for years. Yeah. You know, yes, was, you have. I was, actually, no, said it on the show before. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. it hasn't been all that long. We stood we, up too we, fast. We were quad, we quadrupeds, right? Yeah. So so right. it wasn't that yeah. long ago, really, from an evolutionary perspective. Yeah. And I think we're still evolving. And I think that might be one of the contributing factors to this big problem With of back pain. You know why? Because no matter where you go around the world, whether you go in third world, right. first world, second world, Africa, right. North America, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't it's matter. everywhere. Yeah. And I think even related to times, like if you look at some data from 200 years ago, years, it's, still years, it's still the same. So we haven't really done a good job at making it less prevalent. Exactly. It, it is what it is. And, and, and I think that's a big thing that, you know, I've often said on the show when it comes to uh, spine-related pain, specifically low back pain, um, I, I guess the common uh, perception in the public is that they're looking for a cure, mm -hmm. and, and they can't, and and people can't seem to accept the fact that it's it's really going to come down to management of of your spine-related issue, and not necessarily a cure. Because I mean, the data is pretty clear that once you've experienced back pain, you're likely to experience it again and again and again, and it's likely to get worse if you don't do the right things. Absolutely, and I think you, you hit it dead on. In our clinic, it's about disability management, it's dis disability prevention, it's about maximizing function. It's really not about eliminating pain because you've got wear and tear in the spine, the stenosis, and we're not going to be able to change that. Right. And one thing you really brought up really important is patient's expectations. And we know patient expectations are very, very powerful predictors of outcomes. Right. That is to say, if patients think they're going to do well, they tend to do well, and those that don't think that they're going to do well, they're not going to do well. So at the very beginning of our programs, before they actually even start, we set the game rules. We get the objectives and, and, and goals of our program, and we tell them up front, our goal is not eliminating pain because we can't do that. So right. you're trying to change those expectations. You're trying to mitigate those expectations. You're trying to make those expectations realistic. And once they come on board and think less about the pain and focus on their function, they tend to do better. Right. Before we get into the treatment, which I want to spend the last part of the show very much on that, um, you mentioned already that first it comes down to the history and we've gone through what the patient would describe. Clinically, what are you looking for? 
Right. Before the MRIs, of course. Right. So when we look from, from after we've done the history, we already have a fairly good idea, idea that the patient has neurogenic claudication because they'll tell us, you know, they have problems when they stand and they walk. When they sit down, they have little or no symptoms. When they lie down, they're fine. And the more they walk and the more they stand, the more they have symptoms. So that in itself is very, very diagnostic, that particular description. Um, in the clinical examination, it really depends how severe how severe their condition is. In the early stages of spinal stenosis, the the, the physical examination may be totally normal, right? Full range of motion, no nerve related tension signs, no loss of weakness, no sensory loss, no changes in reflexes in the early stages. However, as this condition progresses over time, then we start seeing weakness. For, for example, they have difficulty standing on their toes, difficulty standing on their heels. Right. Their symptoms get worse when they, when, when they extend backwards. They're standing with a stooped posture, leaning forward. Yeah, that, that's an interesting one. Yeah, there. so yeah. because they're leading forward because they want to alleviate the pressure on the spine, so they'll come up when they ask them to stand, they're in a flex position or bending forward because that's what gives them really so later on, as the condition progressive, the physical examination will highlight more physical findings. Early stage is not much, but the things you're looking for is the stoop posture, the symptoms getting worse with you when you extend the spine. Because remember, when you extend the spine backwards or you, or you arch your back backwards, you are closing the holes, and that increases the symptoms the patients experience. That's why patients like leaning over a shopping cart, leaning over a cane, leaning over a walker, because they have less symptoms. Straight leg raise is negative in these patient population. Uh, there's also some confusion about that with our residents. And that's when you do a straight leg raise, which is often positive in a disc herniation, is negative in spinal stenosis because when you do a straight leg raise, you're actually flexing the spine. Spine. And, and that's actually relieving for stenosis. That's relieving for the stenosis. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that gives rise to less symptoms. So you would expect that to be negative. Right. So I, I, all great. So we've, you know, we've gone through what spinal stenosis is. We've gone through what it presents like, what a clinician would see clinically. And now I think the important part for our listeners, which we'll get to after the break, comes to how do you treat this? What are the best options uh, that we have? And also maybe what are not so good options uh, that, that people are probably doing? Lots more coming up. Stick around. Dr. Amandolia is here for the duration. Fascinating stuff, especially if you're a back pain sufferer of stenosis or otherwise, this is the uh, the show for you. To reach out, get a hold of uh, Dr. Lou. Simple, one 855 doctor Lou D-R-L-O-U. And you know the email, info at paincarecanada.com. Dr. Pain Show, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. One eight five 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 Doctor Lou D R L O U and info at paincarecanada.com. That is the way to get a hold of Doctor Lou. Uh, when the Doctor Pain Show is not on, got uh, Doctor Amandolia is here doing the uh, doing the stenosis, talking about backs, and now we're going to move into things that are uh, well treatment for uh, for the most part, right? Yeah, right. So you know, off air we were we were just kind of quickly saying so. What, what are some of the common approaches that people are doing to to treat their spinal stenosis currently that probably are not the best? Right. So when you're dealing with the clotic form of spinal stenosis, which is what we've been talking now, neurogenic claudication, spinal injections are very common. In fact, 25% of all spinal injections are done for spinal stenosis. Wow. And the evidence doesn't support it for the clotic form. Right. There are other 
types of spinal stenosis giving rise to radicular forms where injections might be useful for, but the patient who has that difficulty walking and gets relieved by sitting and, and leaning forward, the clotting form, spinal injections don't work. And the reason for that is because what's really happening in the spine to cause the symptoms is something called, called neuroischemia. There's a lack of blood flow to the spinal nerves that give rise to the numbness and tingling and weakness in the legs. It's like choking the nerve or lack of oxygen to the nerve. And so it's not really an inflammatory process. So when we're looking at anti-inflammatory medications, for example, that's not going to work. Not work. Uh, steroid injections are not going to work because it's not truly a, an inflammatory condition. Right. It's a neuroischemic problem. So those particular medications, those particular interventions are not going to be useful, yet they're being prescribed quite often. Quite often. And I mean, that's the, with without deviating too far from spinal stenosis, that's the reality with back pain too. There mm. are, you know, a lot of the research around medication for just general uh, mechanical back right. pain, medicine is either not as good or as good as some other um, ther- therapeutic interventions like manipulation or massage, right. uh, physical therapy mm-hmm. that, you know, why why not go that route when the, the side effect is so much less than what potentially some of the medications that treat these things could be. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then the other uh, most common uh, medication, if you will, is, is pregabalin. Mm-hmm. or gabapentin, mm-hmm. and these are anticonvulsive type medications, right. and they're being used for spinal stenosis. And now there's growing evidence that they're not effective uh, for this condition. Some recent randomized control trials, some recent systematic reviews are suggesting not only for back pain are they not useful, but for radicular pain as well. Right. Uh, and why is that important? It's important, number one, that you're giving a treatment that's not effective, but also they have side effects. Right. And the most common side effects for these conditions is disorientation, dizziness, and we're dealing with an older population who have these issues to start off with and you don't want them becoming because they're high risk for falls spinal stenosis patients are a very very high risk for falls and so about 60 36 percent of patients over the age of 65 are going to have a fall in the next two two months next two years so that is to say but those who have a spinal stenosis that increases significantly because balance issues is very prominent in this population so you don't want as the nerve gets affected nerves get affected proprioception becomes impacted and patients have difficulty standing uh, and feeling that uh, feeling unsteady, uh, and so balance is an issue. So you don't want to be giving patients number one drugs that are not effective, but also drugs that might impact their cognitive uh, uh, do- cognitive function and make them more at risk for falling. One one of the questions I get asked a lot for an option is surgery. Mm-hmm. Surgery an option for spinal stenosis? Absolutely, surgery is an option for those patients who have leg dominant symptoms. For for leg dominant symptoms, that is to say that the symptoms in the leg are the predominant factors that are contributing to the patient's disability, and and you can relate the, that pain in the leg to a nerve from the spine. Then patients do tend to do well. But surgery is not a cure. Right. Yeah. Uh, surgery does provide benefit, and there's a lot of debate in terms of how long the benefit will be. Anywhere from two years to eight years, because the grow the bone grows back, right. and then other levels become involved. And oftentimes, uh, well, not so much in Canada, but in the states, they do a lot of fusions. Yes. And fusions um, cause something called adjacent vertebral disease, where you have the adjacent. Uh, joints that are that are above or below the area of fusion become problematic over time because they, they're moving more to make up exactly, for it. Yeah. and so you get end up going back to the surgeon and and having more surgery. So surgery is effective for yeah. leg dominant symptoms, but the benefits tend to diminish over time. And and I think and I, I you know most surgeons would want to see that there's there's 
hard neurological findings in order for them because they'd have to be able to identify exactly what levels they're going to work on versus just going in there in a shotgun approach where you're not going to go in there and, and right. operate all the way throughout the whole lumbar spine. But when you can identify a specific area that's probably more problematic than others, then that's probably a, a better option. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we're fortunate to have a lot of excellent surgeons uh, at University of Toronto Spine Program and uh, they are, uh, you know, very conservative in their approach and uh, they are very effective in terms of identifying those patients who are most suited for surgery. Right. And, and that's, a, that's a great point that you bring up because I know clinically I've seen people that have said, you know, they've gone somewhere else and they've seen a spine surgeon and been told, no, we're not going to do surgery mm -hmm. with you. And, and, and they seem, you know, to some extent pissed off that they're not going to have surgery. But, you know, that's a very important thing. A surgeon wants to be, I think any practitioner wants to be able to identify the populations that they can help the most because otherwise what's the point of right. intervening? Right. And, I, and I think the general public at, at some points probably sees that as a negative when really it's a positive that, mm -hmm. that you have a healthcare professional, whether it be a surgeon or a chiropractor or whomever, who's trying to line up their therapeutic intervention with what you're presenting with and making sure that, that it's the right treatment for the right diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Very, very interesting stuff. With so now let's go on to what you've done with spinal stenosis right. because you've created a, what you call a boot camp for spinal stenosis um, and you've done a lot of research around what it is that helps spinal stenosis. So why don't you take us a little bit through what are the things that seem to be really effective for spinal stenosis and then more on what your specific program is. Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, spinal stenosis is a, is a complicated condition in that there's lots of factors that will impact the pe person's inability to walk. You know, in addition to the nerve problem, there's deconditioning. There's patients who are overweight because they're sitting all day because they have relief when they sit. So it's some multi-factors that are involved in the actual symptomatology. So our program is very multifactorial and it tries to address the multitude of issues that impact people's ability to walk. And so there are three things that are really important. Number one is we use home-based exercise. So patients need to do exercise and they're very condition-specific exercise, exercises that encourage patients to build flexion, uh, ability to, to be to do flexion exercises. Patients are on stationary bikes to improve strength in their legs and overall conditioning. Their core stabilization exercises to improve the core strength. Uh, so these are exercises that help patients ultimately uh, help themselves. So we're very uh, high on self-management because there's no cure for spinal stenosis. So the goal is really giving patients the skill, the knowledge, and the self-confidence to manage this condition on their own. So we've, we've, gonna, we've developed a series of exercises that patients do for the rest of their lives uh, to try to manage the condition on their own. Then there's the education part where patients learn what spinal stenosis is, what it's not, and what they can do to help themselves. And then there's manual therapy. And manual therapy is used to help patients have a flexible spine help them to have more mobility of the nerves and actually facilitate the exercises that they're planning to do down the road. So it's a multimodal approach. Right. It's a training program. We call it a training program uh, because we're training patients how to manage this condition for the rest of their lives using using certain modalities early on, but eventually the, ex the manual therapy is replaced by exercises and self-management. And uh, we have now very good data that this condition uh, can be managed quite effectively, conservatively with our boot camp program. Awesome stuff. Let's let's talk more about the boot camp when we get back from break. One short break before we wrap it for this hour on the Dr. Payne Show to reach out one eight five 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 Dr. Lou and info at paincarecanada.com. Dr. Payne Show, Global News Radio, six forty Toronto. 
Dr. Payne Show, the reach out, uh, the number one eight five 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 doctor Lou D-R-L-O-U, info at paincarecanada.com. This entire hour we've been talking about the spine and stenosis and how to treat it here with Dr. Carlo Amendolia, and it's been a fascinating hour, uh, Dr. Lou, and I know you got a, a few more questions you want to squeeze in here in our last few minutes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think let's continue down what what in the treatment with the boot camp, what sure. what people can expect out of that, and what are the things that are being done. Right. So. Yeah, so we had done a, quite a bit of research prior to putting the boot camp program together, looking at what things might help these patients, and we couldn't find anything because the research was very, very sparse in this area. And so we developed this boot camp program. Again, it's multimodal. It deals with the various issues that the patients present that impact their ability to walk. It's twice a week for six weeks. It's a training program where we train patients how to self-manage. We combine manual therapy, education, um, and uh, self-management over that six-week period. And the patients then have a program that they need to do for the rest of their lives. And the program consists of of exercises that they do, but also how to stand and walk in a certain way to maximize the openings of the spinal canals. We say it's it's, the term is used a pelvic tilt position, which is the position which gives the largest opening of the spinal canals when they stand and walk. But in order for patients to be able to get into that position, you need to have strong core, you need to have a flexible back, you need to have nerves that are mobile in the spine. And so those are the goals of the therapy. But ultimately, the patient's going to be doing this all on their own. Right. And so we've got some good data now over the past several years. We've done um, uh, two randomized controlled trials. The most recent one just got published last month. And we were looking at uh, patients who've been through the boot camp program over a six-week period of time, and we wanted to measure their walking ability. And we showed uh, that this particular program was able to significantly improve their patients' uh, patients' ability to walk. In fact, at at eight weeks, patients were able to improve their walking by 500 meters or half wow. a kilometer. And what's really interesting about the results is that the benefits actually got better over time. Really? So at six months, they were able to walk 550 meters more and then six, 700, 675 meters more at 12 months. And that's using a, a, a objective walking test over a 30-minute period of time. So we're measuring how far they can walk in 30 minutes. So 500 meters improvement doesn't seem like a lot. For someone who can't walk even across the across the street, this is a huge improvement. Huge, massive, and yeah. what, what, what is even important is the sustainability. So this particular improvement is sustained over time. And, so and seems to get better, as you mentioned. Seems to get better. And that's yeah. because patients are getting stronger. They're getting uh, more, uh, more self-confidence and more self-efficacy around how to manage the condition on their own. So we're having a, a large magnitude in the benefit, but the benefit's maintained over time. So we're also getting behavioral change. So patients are now changing their views around, around it's not about their pain, it's about their function. They're able to measure yeah. it. We're using pedometers for patients to get feedback on how well they're doing. And so uh, we've been very excited uh, by the results. Um, and, uh, and now we're looking at more analyses around that data to see whether we can find predictors again and if we can find other things that might help us to identify condition the people earlier on that um, might benefit and uh, trying to identify patients who may not do better and may need surgery earlier on. So we're right. looking at predictors now. So yes, yeah, so we're very pleased with the randomized control trial um, uh, on the results. And now uh, again, looking at other aspects of the condition to help others uh, to identify people earlier on. Yeah. That, and that, that was going to be my question. Is there potentially a way that we can prevent this? And, and maybe the answer is no, maybe the reality is stenosis will is going to happen. I mean, you and I both know that that that's inevitable that it happens as people age. But is there maybe a way, um, like you're saying, instead of preventing it, which is a big focus in in a lot of healthcare, but really accepting, okay, well, it does happen. Are there ways, like you've mentioned, to identify um, people earlier on so that they can start these interventions right. earlier on? And I think 
it's important if you've had these types of leg symptoms and although you're still able to walk, but it's starting, probably the earlier you start the boot camp program or something like that, mm -hmm. the better you, your long-term prognosis is. Yeah, and so when we look at the data, we've just uh, looked at some data now looking at the duration of symptoms, and the longer you've had the duration of symptoms, the less likely you do well. Right. So the earlier we get this condition, the more likely we can these patients will that benefit. Makes sense. So, yeah. so so far the data is sort of pointing in that direction that early early diagnosis and early intervention might help these patients do better. So if, so if we have listeners right now that think they might have this going on, how can they get to see you? Um, or they, someone in your yeah, team. Yeah, so uh, there's a couple of ways. Number one, you can give us a call at Mount Sinai Hospital, um, and I'm sure if you just go on Mount Sinai Hospital, you'll find me, or you can go on spinemobility.com, which is our website, and we have trained a number of people worldwide on how to do the boot camp program. I travel extensively worldwide, training doctors uh, in, in, in Europe, and I just came back from Australia. And so there's a number of practitioners that may have been trained in your area, and just going on West website and looking under resources, you you might find a practitioner close to you that had been trained in the boot camp program. Or if you're in Toronto, close by to the hospital, you might want to uh, give us a call and, uh, and book an appointment for, for an evaluation. And I mean, if people are listening and they don't remember that, you, you know how to get a hold of me. I can put you in touch with Dr. Amendolia. I think, you know, incredible. We'd love to have you back again. This is, I, I don't think one hour does it justice to go through everything. And, and you're you not only work with spinal stenosis, but again, with other spine-related problems um, and even some autoimmune things like ankylosing, spondylitis, uh, things that affect the spine. So I think it would be great to have you back um, to, to continue to pick your brain and, and again, find what are the best ways to manage and treat these conditions because, you know, th that's the biggest problem that I've seen in doing what I do um, with this platform is that there's gross mismanagement of, of spine-related uh, pain and 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 thank you for for being on the forefront of of <laughs> leading it the right way. I think it's great. Yeah, thank you. No problem. Pleasure. Done for another week, guys. Fantastic stuff. Again, as mentioned, you want to reach out, you can do so. One eight five 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 Doctor Lou or info at paincarecanada.com. Thanks again to Dr. Amandalia for stopping by for the hour. We'd love to have you back indeed. And we'll have you back in the next edition of the Dr. Payne Show right here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.